0: Three pickings from Embedded Software Engineering Congress 2016. Welcome to episode number 50 of the Mastering Embedded Systems podcast. I'm your host Georg Laura. This is the podcast for everybody who is interested in having more success in his project work. Today we will have a shorter episode because my wife has had a knee surgery. The date of the surgery was advanced something like three weeks and corrupted our whole family schedule. At moment, she cannot move and I have to maintain the house, prepare the food, do the laundry and what else comes into your mind running family business. So I'm in some kind of time shortage at moment. Moreover, this was a quite tight week because there was the ESE Congress in Sindelfingen. The ESE Congress, so the Embedded Software Engineering Congress in Germany, is the biggest gathering for embedded software and hardware engineers in Germany. I was there with my presentation no belly flops with virtual teams. The ESE congress is a great happening with interesting persons, tons of amazing talks and very detailed and even new topics in the presentations. For your purpose, I picked three interesting topics out of nearly 100 presentations. Of course it's not a representative selection, but I have selected some of the topics which seem to be of some more general interest. I also wanted to highlight that this is the 50th episode. I'm very happy, and I'm also a little bit proud—not of me, but on you guys out there. You assisted me and supported me since one and a half year. Thank you, brothers. You guys should listen to this episode if you want to get a short glimpse into the ongoing actions and progresses in the embedded realm. Perhaps it might be also some idea to visit the ESE Congress by yourself in the next years, or you want to go to Stockholm for the Embedded Conference in Scandinavia, which requests to be the largest conference for embedded topics in Europe. This episode will support you and get in touch with some selected trends within the embedded systems computing. So, and if you'd like more information, visit the show notes at embeddedsuccess.com slash episode 50. Now, stay tuned and be inspired. First, I have picked the presentation by Chris Hobbs from QNX Systems. He was talking about hardware faults in safety critical systems. You might remember the story with Michael Levchik in episode number 17 about soft errors. That's, ex- that's exactly the topic. So, we are talking about arbitrary soft and hardware faults. Chris mentioned that the reliability of embedded systems seems to decrease first time in history. The big question is does Any kind of unexpected hardware fault jeopardizes running systems. What do we do if we uh, experience some kind of unwanted hardware or software faults? Okay, there might be not wanted software faults, but if we are unexpected and arbitrary, it's a challenge. What about safety and security critical systems? For example, you are responsible for the operation of a nuclear power plant. Or we are thinking about car systems or about the flight controls in aircrafts or also some kind of cardi- cardiac pacemaker. So if you have an unexpected arbitrary hardware fault in your cardiac pacemaker, it's not that good story. So for that reason, for regularly to handle hardware or even software faults in safety critical systems, very often so-called supervisors introduced. So you have the regular scenario, you have sensors, we have some kind of calculation nucleus, so some kind of instance, some kind of server who does some kind of calculation. And then finally, we got the result of the calculation and forward it to the actors. All three parties are involved by a supervising instance. So if you introduce a supervisor, you will connect them to the sensors, to the calculation nucleus and to the actors too. In simple systems, the supervisor can only reset the system. You might remember that so of a of a watchdog for example that 's the typical supervisor which is out of the system or part of the system, but nevertheless it uh, it's not engaged into all the different kinds of activities. it only looks for one particular trigger, for example but Uh, Very, very simple systems um, have only, in a case of misbehavior, the opportunity to reset the system to come back to a safe state. In a more versatile implementation, mainly triggered by normative requirements, so for example, for the automotive area, it's the uh, ISO 26262, the supervisor is enhanced to build an active monitoring or even so-called safety bag, the safety bag monitors the input of the sensors, the output of the calculation part, and decides whether the output of 2 the actors will be safe and secure. Of course, the safety bag cannot calculate the output values by itself. Very often the calculations are quite complex. However, it can determine whether we are in an acceptable range. If we are not, the safety bag overrides the output values with secure, But of course, not optimal values. What kind of problems do we now have in nowadays architectures? You can very often eliminate arbitrary hardware and software errors by introducing a second calculation nucleus. So you have some kind of parallel calculation and compare the results of both calculations by voting. This of course increases the complexity quite, yeah, quite dramatically. You have to synchronize the results, you have to exchange information, and you have to decide and act. But the biggest problem is what you connect or you weave together two independent aspects of the whole system. So on one side you have the programmer of the calculation who needs to have now the reliability of the system in mind, and of the, on the other side for the reliability. You have a statistician who needs to understand the complex algorithms of the calculation. So the resulting systems are very often very rigid. So you have cannot you cannot change the level of reliability dynamically. For example, um, yeah, I, I think I think on something like if you're in the car on the highway, you want to emphasize the availability of the system. The car should not simply stop immediately or something like that. It should be available for you. But if you are in the city, you need more reliability. When it, it breaks immediately, that the controls are very accurate and all these things. So you have different aspects, you have different intentions in different situations. There is, of course, one way to realize this kind of parallelism. That's hardware lockstep processors. We support this kind of approach. It's simply some kind of a processor with. Two or three or even more calculation instances inside, which do which do exactly the same. Uh, we are fixed in a number of the parallel replicated instances, of course, uh, and we are also we, we do not support diversification. So you only can you only can completely replicate the system. So when you get two same results in the in the best case. Or you get differing results, and then you have to vote and compare what what is the most appropriate. Um the problem with, with hardware lockstep processes, however, is also that hardware lockstep does not protect against arbitrary software faults, so-called Heisenbugs. So that's that's you know these kind of bugs. You you change something in the system and the and the bug vanishes. You have the bug only with optimized uh with the uh, with fully optimization enabled in a compiler, for example. Or you end you add somewhere an, an output printf statement or put s or whatever you use in your language. And the and the problem vanishes, simply relaxed due to the situation that you do some kind of uh, of forced synchronization using an input-output statement. This is very often things which also happen on hardware lockstep processes, and we do not protect you against that. However, Chris introduces us into a different approach, which is the so-called virtual synchrony. It was already introduced in 1987 by Kent Berman from the Cornell University and it was originally described as "...in a virtually synchronous environment, routines can be programmed and will behave as if distributed actions were performed instantaneously and in lockstep. It will appear to any observer any process using the system that all processes observe the same events in the same order." Okay, nobody can understand that. So that only simply means we have some kind of loosely coupled lockstep. So we, uh, um, an approach which does, which does not suffer of the disadvantages from hardware lockstepping, and it is done in that way. There are LCLS components, so the loosely coupled lockstep LCLS components are organized as groups. The sensors and actors do only communicate with the groups. We do not know anything about internally different calculation service. And inside of the LCLS groups, you can have diversified applications, different instances of the same application with, for example, compiled with a different compiler or compiled with a different compiler setup. Or even with a different source code, you know that from avionics situations where we have different compasses, and we are all based, we are all provided by different companies simply to um, to ensure that they are really different and not only three times the same, which might three times the same uh, at the, which might fail at the at the same time three times, and uh, all of them, all of them, uh, all of these applications get the same input data stream. In parallel, where are the supervisors, the safety bags, and they do also receive the same input data stream, and there might be again multiple supervisors available. So, and the supervisors provide a more simplified result out of the calculation. They do not calculate it by themselves. For example, where there might be an input data stream on the. Um, on the, on, the, on the bus, in a, in a car. For example, from, uh, you get data from the gear sensors, from the gas pedal position, the motor and brake status. And the result of a calculation, if you press the braking pedal, might be, from the supervisor's point of view, it might be something like acceptable between 135 and 150 Newton. That's it. But the exact value, which might be 145.356 Newtons, is calculated from the service. So, and if now one of the servers um, gets out of that range, it's simply ignored. And that's done within this kind of voting instances. We take the result of the different LCLS instances, compare it and vote for them. If the calculated values are within the range provided by supervisors, the voting instance agrees to forward the action to the actor. Otherwise, the same the same situation is there. Uh, the action is not granted, and the supervisor and um, the supervisor, uh, the supervisor's proposal will be followed to give a valid but safe value to to be uh, forwarded to the brake actors. The main benefit of this loosely coupled lockstep approach is. You can, first of all, you can introduce it later. So you can introduce it to an existing system. You, don't, you do not have to take it into account from the very beginning. You can reorganize your software. And you can dynamically change the group memberships of calculation servers and supervising instances. So you could, can put in more calculation instances or more supervising instances or, um, or withdraw them with the time. So thus you can adapt your emphasis on reliability, availability or security dynamically. That's quite easy. Chris Hobbs from QNX, who, was, who has presented these details, mentioned that in 2017 QNX will use the Los Alamos National Laboratory to use a neutron stream to provoke failures. And that's the guys who were beginning or who have already heard episode 17 with Michael Lefczyk. We were discussing about soft errors in hardware. And that's exactly the case we mentioned where, due to neutron strikes, we observe arbitrary failures. That's the one which is now also handled with virtual synchrony and the loosely coupled lockstep. Okay, let's come to the second pick for this episode the renaissance of ADA. Some of you guys, especially the quite older ones, will remember the programming language ADA. ADA is pretty much old already, but it has some real um, real benefits belonging to, um, to areas like avionics, uh, automotive, all security areas and so on, because ADA was especially designed originally for defense reasons. And it has a very high emphasis on things like um, safety and security so reliability recoverability for example and it has implicit real-time capabilities on embedded systems of course the the, the operating system needs to provide these details but the the language is not pre- preventing you f- you from using them and it has a quite uh, amazing possibility to maintain the software even during decades it has a very good readability and you can you can um, understand the program projects even bigger ones quite easily and you have you save time a lot for that because you already at the very beginning ADA shows you coding errors and it has a very simple uh, verification and also certification is quite easy for ADA and you can learn it quite easily. Unfortunately, it was thrown away, it was put away, because it's a really big language, by C and C++. However, if you come into security areas, if you come into areas where you need to have system-critical software, which must be provided there, then ADA is a very good choice. And it's something like that Raimund Scheucher from Airbus Electronics and Border Security introduced us into ADA. Okay, let's have a first look, uh, a short detail into, into ADA itself. For example, the first request for safety and security, and let's take a moment for secure syntax. ADA itself already prevents from the very beginning coding errors during compile time. Some easy steps are already in ADA. For example, if you do an assignment like x equals to 1.5, in um, in some of the european areas it's not 1.5 it's 1,5 for example in germany we we do the the decimal separator is not a point but the comma and in other you can write the one or the other it's fully understood all the time so you prevent this kind of misunderstandings and there is also some kind of that you if you have an if statement when uh, you have the regularly known mathematical syntax structure. So you write if A equals B, and the equal is only one equal sign, when. So if A equals B, then. So that's the statement in Ada. And you guys know how it looks like in C and C++. It's very much uncommon if you come from a mathematical approach that you have to say if A equals equals B. Writing two equal signs is always very error-prone because you can remove one equal sign and it's still a valid C or C++ statement. And you will never find or you will really... you will It's very complicated to find this kind of errors. Also in Ada, you will not find this kind of weird exceptional cases or weird simplification alike in C and C++ if you have an if statement and you don't use parentheses, the next, and only the next one line or the one statement after the if statement is taken as the valid then statement. You always, in Ada you always have to write something like if blah, 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 then do your statements and then say and if. It's not like we in, like in C and C++ you use the open parenthesis and the closing parenthesis and sometimes even no parenthesis, but then it's only one statement and if you omit the, the parenthesis... Uh, But you you make this kind of indentation when it looks like there is a larger when statement, multiple statements in the when part, but it is not like that. The compiler does not interpret it in that way. It's different in Python, where you make this indentation completely and where you optically see it. It's a visual approach. There is one one typical example the Apple's SSL TLS bug which was observed in 2014 it it would have not be possible in Ada because uh, it was simply like someone was uh, using a go to statement in an if clause and it was always if something then go to fail if something then go to fail and accidentally or I, it, it it's not known how it happened that much. There were simply two go-to statements after the if clause. And there were no parentheses. So only the first go-to statement, go-to-fail, was taken for the when part. But the second go-to was taken as the mainstream of the program. So it was directly after this first occurrence of a second go-to-fail, it was jumped to go-to-fail and continued. And that opens some security role holes because the, the later on statements, if statements were protecting for security reasons. Also the casting option in, um, in C or C++ is something which is omitted in, in ADA. You have a very strong typification here. You have something like, if you say something like, uh, you define a type and then you cannot assign it even it's the same underlying base type. So, if you, for example, say, okay, I I create a type called meter, and say it's a float value, and I comp- add, I take a type called kilogram, which is also a float, and then I I instantiate two uh, two variables. I have two instances of these two types. So one of meter and one of kilogram. In C and C you can simply add these two values. You can say, okay, my new cur- my new body size is is my body size, as a meter, plus my weight in kilograms. Both values are under the hood where are float values, so you can easily add them. That's not possible in Ada. So it prevents you from doing this kind of accidental uh, operations or accidental calculations. Uh, okay, I have to admit sometimes it's really a pain because you have to really consider, okay, how do I have to design my data structures that I can do all the calculations I want to do and how do I deal with the resulting values? But that's something I think it's really worth the price to operate in that way to prevent all kind of nasty bugs due to I have not considered that that might be possible. Okay, let's see the second part of Ada here with the real-time possibilities on embedded systems. First of all, Ada supports a bitwise description of data types. You can address you t- can take addresses on a bit size. It's quite easy to do that, and uh, if you say for example you want to store um, a bit value, you can use a boolean. So that you can ha- you can store 32 bits or 32 boolean values in a 32-bit word. So that's easy that's directly supported by the by the by the programming language itself. And Ada does not have any kind of garbage collector like Java or Python and uh, there is something where you will not observe any kind of unattended or unexpected interruption of your program flow. Parallel activities in tasks are supported by tasks in Ada, though so that's also a very good support for any, for some kind uh, of distinct and very precise and determined action of different parallel tasks. You can also set up tasks and you have, uh, you can also set, set up the priorities and, uh, and the timing behavior of these tasks. So in already in the programming language, you are fully supported for most needs of embedded systems. Okay, let's have a look at the third request which was originally raised for ADA. That's the maintainability of the software even over decades. If you first time see an ADA code, it looks pretty much, I would say, n- natural. So it's something you you might understand quite initially. Even you are not uh, educated in, uh, so if you are a tester and you're not educated in writing Ada code you might understand it uh, quite, quite easily. It looks like simple like Pascal the ones you might remember Pascal language by, uh, by Nikolaus Wirth and uh, Ada is based on, on, on Pascal mainly. Ada also support modularization due to packages, procedures, functions, tasks, and there are tag types or class hierarchy, and these all Ada packages are during the are initialized and first scanned and then initialized by the runtime system, and during that time, all tasks were created and launched and this is something which is different from other parts you have to not you have not take care for that in ada it's already done by the by the ada by ada itself and finally your main program part is launched also the interface definition is done directly by ada so you all, every package contains at least two files so that's the specification and the body. So the guys who remember that, that's also a good part of Modula. That was the successor of of Pascal. where We have had exactly the same thing. For every task, for every package you provide, you always have to do an abstract. You always have have to provide an interface definition. That's something which is really weird nowadays with C or C++. If there are no include files needed, you can simply refer to it and the linker will resolve the the open ends. And that's not possible in Ada. You need to have it already, already in the in the program language, in the in the structuring of the code. You have to reflect it. And also with ARA, you save time because you need uh, you do not have that much effort. For example, for testing purposes, you do not need you you don't need that much unit tests. Um, And it's quite easy to learn the language, even if it's that big, because it seems to be quite natural. And all these tricky details you might have in C, C++, the one with the the new 17 standard of C++, you really are, yeah, you're you're sometimes lost with all these new details, and you have to reflect that, and you have to use them. Ada prevents you from that, where there's quite strict way how things are organized, and you can refer to it. And the software will be safer. It will be feature safe and functional safe due to these kind of restrictions. So the unit test effort becomes smaller because also you have some kind of typification uh, inside of the code. Uh, Regularly, uh, Ada—it's quite hard to make it compilable because you, if you're coming from a language like C or C++, you will stumble over a lot of failures at the very beginning because you are familiar to assign things quite easily and handle it in a very, in a very loosely way, and this is everything like that is prevented by Ada. But finally, you come out with something which is even on the on the compile level or even more, um, yeah, strict and very stable. When there is one thing which was really uh, introduced in former times by additional packages in C, C++ or even other languages, but you have uh, pre- and post-conditions of your calls. Every procedure or function in ADA can have pre- and post-conditions. It's not a constructor or destructor, but it's something which depends on a function itself. So when you can make additional restrictions or you can prove during runtime, and this is something which uh, supports on a very low level already your your algorithm and your software and makes the the software safer simply due to these kind of opportunities of the language. There is a very active community with Ada, so you don't set on the on a dead horse using Ada directly, and it might be a good chance to. Yeah, for you to, to give Ada a chance to see the next time you start a small project and give it a try with Ada and see what will be the result, how will it be different, how complicated is it that, how much effort do you have to spend. But it's quite easy to learn. It's something like you uh, get very verbose compiler messages, you detect errors quite easily and very, very fast. And you get rather a good boost in becoming better with, with Ada. So Ada compilers regularly behave much more like a tool which supports you when any other language. In the show notes I will give you some, um, some references to see for which systems you can get Ada compilers quite easily. But... Uh, we are already we are available for Windows, Mac OS, Linux, ARM processes. You get Ada quite easily. It's a very well-established language community. Well, let's come to the third pick. It's called Agile Development Processes in Normative Regulated Environments. Okay, what does that mean? That was there was a presentation by Rosalinde Schuster and Christoph Legat from Berlin and Matter System Techniques in Germany. And we referred to the regular Agile manifesto and Scrum processes with different processes and tools and documentation, etc. But on the other side, even if you introduce Agile development, even if you use Agile methods, even you have Scrum teams established, you might not oversee, you might be limited due to the facts of law. And especially in Germany, with the automotive industry, you have a quite lot of regulate uh, of normative regulated environments, so you have to provide some kind of testing you need to have some kind of certification you are regulated regulated to provide additional approval that your system behaves in specific conditions in a very specific way and this must be approved and that 's something you cannot ignore nor even if you if if you are using Waterfall or Agile, it doesn't matter. You have to provide it. So the question is, how can you do it if you want to refer to Agile methods? Okay, let's see. What does Agile mean with Agile Teams? So we regularly have some kind of fixed length of iteration. So that's the so-called sprint, you know that. And with every sprint, we should have a runnable product. Scrum... Is only the starting point for an enhanced model how to realize agile if you want to satisfy the requests of a normative regulated environment with all the with all the approvals, you will have to have something like a quality assurance, and this kind of quality assurance can be provided by an enhanced version of the scrum methodology and here. Um, Rosalinde Schuster and Christoph Legat refer to the Scrum QA model, which is rather well known, and it has something of an extension of the regular Scrum working processes. But first of all, let's have a look at the Scrum working processes in detail. You regularly start with the initial sprint. Within the initial sprint, very often um, things are only optionally done, like, for example, thinking about um, testing methods, uh, quality assurance, uh, risk minimation, or also risk avoidance, and so on. But this kind of activities are essential for a normative regulated evi- environment. So you will, you will have to do them, you have to provide them, and they will become a part of the de- de- definition of done. That's the main difference in the very first sprint. So you will expand your definition of done for something like quality, scalability uh, and also aspects for uh, certification and documentation. That's the main difference. The so-called product backlog in Scrum will also be advanced or will be also enhanced to reflect all these requirements for quality assurance. And as in regular Scrum, you will have the intention to provide a ready-made product with every sprint. So at the end of the sprint, you should have a product which is runnable. But now you might have a quite big amount of certification preparation actions or for documentation to provide this kind of certification and approval later on. And therefore, you might have to increase the duration of your sprints the two percenters suggested to have a 30-day sprint, which seems to be a kind uh, of an optimum to support all these kind of different strategies and all these kind of different requirements in the in one sprint. And then finally, due to the documentation theories, you need to have some kind of a stabilization sprint as a, some kind of um, special form of a sprint to provide a kind of st- Stabilizing in front of every major release. In the stabilization sprint, you will provide all these missing details. You need to provide for the uh, for the approval or for the certification. For example, security tests, additional stability tests, functional tests, and so on. All these are all these uh, major details which are not reflected in regular sprint delivery, but needs to be aw- needs to be provided for the certification. Okay. How can we do that in Scrum QA? We have the regular roles out of Scrum. You know that. You have the product owner who is responsible for the product and who needs also be uh, or he's also responsible for risk management and he takes uh, uh, the or he maintains the contacts to all the external parties of the of the product, so the customers, stakeholders and whatsoever you have in mind. And This now also gets a little bit enhanced because also the product owner now needs to take the contact or needs to maintain the contact to the approval instances. For example, the people who are doing the certification. The Scrum Master, the Scrum Master still is the same role as before. It's all in the regular scrum. But it's also a little bit extended because the Scrum Master now needs to also support the processes to provide this kind of normative uh, rules and texts and templates and uh, also uh, normative documentation. That's all the things which needs to be fulfilled by the Scrum Master. And he needs also to provide, um, yeah, let's say, the possibility or the skills to moderate details during inspections and audits which are not regular for regular Scrum. And all the things which belong to quality assurance needs also be maintained by the Scrum Master in a way of processing activities. The team is the team as in regular Scrum, but it's also a little bit are enhanced from from the things we need to do, we now have to provide, for example, special templated documentation, we have to provide additional tests, we have to provide additional test coverage, things like that are responsible in the team itself. And then additional to these three typical roles in Scrum, so the product owner, the Scrum master and the team, there is an additional role that's the so-called test manager. The test manager's main duty is to confirm the, the norms and the quality assurance. And it's it's highlighted as a separate instance because it's very something which uh, he needs, yeah, he is, the, he is the contact partner, he is the main contact in all kind of questions belonging, technical and organizational requirements. For example, he is responsible for functional safety or for extending technical technical documentation with the results of the quality assurance methods, or he provides tests and ensures that tests are made or reviews are made or inspections are made and so on. And now what are the artifacts of Scrum QA? Of course, you have the regular increment, so finally we'll have the code running, you will have the product available. But due to the fact that you need things like trackability um, to achieve main certification for, uh, for quality reasons, there is the need for additional documentation which needs to be provided and which will be resolved or it will be issued by the Scrum QA process. It's mainly against the Agile Manifesto to provide this kind of requested and also very verbose documentation, but unfortunately you cannot avoid it if you are in a normative regulated environment. So if that if that is a killing point for you, when you have to withdraw Agile and go back to some other method, because you have to provide these kind of documents to achieve the approval. Without approval, you cannot sell your product and without selling your product, your company will be finally dead. Okay, so there it's quite easy. So if you want to go Agile, you have to provide within a normative regulated environment, you have to provide these details and you can consider it, I will do it with Agile or not with Agile, but with Agile, you will have it. And then you will work a little bit against the Agile manifesto, but from my perspective, um, it's, not, it's not a bad price to pay because it's simply something, yeah, you, you cannot avoid it and you should, you should do the best out of that. And especially in an agile environment, it's something you can do it very dynamically. You need the, you need the, the, the boundary points and then you can fulfill them. In a nutshell, if you are in a normative regulated environment, you can use agile You can use the Scrum methodology, but you have to pimp it up. You need to enhance it. You need to take care that there is a continuous documentation from design to reality of the system. You need to have continuous uh, assurance of the testability from design until realization. Due to the fact of, due to the way how agile works. And due to the enhanced communication effort, also the test management environments could be much more slim like in other systems because you can replace parts of it by a very good documentation. But that's something which needs to be done. The presenters have evaluated this kind of approach very positively. Their experience shows that there is a good way, there is a positive impact on an efficient way how projects can be done with an agile approach using Scrum QA. However, we have one, yeah, let's say one drawback of this situation, one restriction. It's very critical that you achieve the right amount, that you select the right persons to do this kind of additional work, that you that you work in a not that pure agile environment, but with some limitations due, due to the due to the uh, normative regulation, but it's possible. But you have to take a very good and deep look on the persons you select on them. So if we are strictly agile, if you if we are more or less evangelists for agile. We might be not the right persons to do it. You need to have persons who are a little bit more practical, who are a little bit more not that, uh, not that strong believers in agile in a way of there is only one way to do it. And when you have a very good chance to do a great job with Scrum QA. Hey, despite my expectation, this was not that short episode. Of course, there are tons of other details from the ESE Congress, but I couldn't join all the presentations. You have to imagine there are four streams in parallel on each of the three days. And I needed to prepare for my own presentation too. So if you are the clever guys, I think you are, have a look at the program of the ESE Congress and forward me your preferred topic. I'll see that I can gather the relevant details and provide you a special episode. The link to the ESE Congress is in the show notes. There is also the program of the Congress available. Have a look at it. If you have any particular questions, any specific topic in mind you're interested in, pass me a short note. I'll see what I can do to provide you a specific episode. Then, Guys, if you have any details in mind, any questions I recommend, I would be happy if you reach out for me. Send me a direct feedback via mail, Twitter, LinkedIn or whatever you prefer. Details are available at the show notes in banditsuccess.com slash episode 50. And now we are at the end of the 50th episode. I'm Georg Laura. Thank you for listening.